We left off with the uh, 13th contemplation of the Anapanasati discourse of the Buddha, uh, suggesting that in seeing impermanence and some of the unsatisfactoriness that's an expression of impermanence, uh, also this understanding of not-self is integral to that and grows out of it. As you understand the law of impermanence, uh, everything else becomes clear because they're really uh, expressions of something that's one thing. Like fire would have a certain form, it would also have a color, and would have heat. And so, if you can understand impermanence, uh, everything else is easier. And <clears throat> I think it's important that we make it clear why. I mean, uh, as we begin to see the, uh, the movement in mind of all the different mind states and bodily conditions, by now you've seen quite a bit come and go, haven't you? Uh, different uh, ways in which you've felt, different ways in which the body has felt, uh, like a parade, an end endless procession. And the practice is watching it watching it all come and go, come and go, come and go. A bit like, do you remember at the end of uh, one of the early stages, or maybe for quite a while during the Cold War, uh, once a year there'd be a celebration and in Red Square, I think, and uh, you'd have the high-ranking communist officials and the generals with medals almost down to the floor, and then there'd be this parade. And first, the Red Army would come by with hot high kicks that, you know, always used to be amazing. They seemed more like ballet dancers than soldiers. And then the tanks would come, and then the artillery, and then the navy, and then the air corps. It was a little bit scary, a little bit humorous because it seemed so overdone. And then the brass would be there just saluting as everyone comes by. Our practice is a little like that. <laughs> what we're seeing are the hindrances parading by, here they come. <laughs> you know, greedy ones, just grabbing at everything, wanting, never satisfied, the aversive ones, critical of everything, finding fault, not enough of this, too much of that, not quiet enough, too quiet, and so on. Why do that? Why see what is the value of seeing uh, impermanence and, and not self, that none of itself? Um, before we move into that, I think we have to make clear we've been using the term intimacy a fair amount, both Michael and I. And I think perhaps by usage you're getting a sense of what we mean. But uh, I want to give you a number of concrete examples so uh, there's no mistake about what we mean, because if we're talking about living wisdom, that means wisdom that's really alive, not just on the cushion, but that is that manifests in life, the so-called real world that we'll, not so-called, but definitely be going back to soon. Uh, the test of our wisdom is 
that it's deep enough so that when we're challenged in life, we display that we've learned something. If it only, the only time you can be wise and compassionate and kind is on your cushion, uh, sending metta to everyone, you know, may all beings be happy, to, out to the stars, and then someone uh, puts their shoes where you usually keep your shoes out on the, and you're ready to strangle them, you know. But our challenges will be a little bit more uh, intense than that when we go home. Okay. So a prerequisite for the living wisdom is for the learning to go deeply, for us to really understand uh, in a, a vivid way. And intimacy of practice, uh, one way to put it is that, well, the, the great Japanese uh, Zen master Dogen was asked once what the awakened mind is, the mind of enlightenment. And he said, it's the, the mind that's intimate with all things. Uh, it's as good a definition as I've heard, intimate with all things. And of course, finally, and most important, it's not really finally, it's first and foremost, is intimate with yourself. Okay, so uh, if we start in a more concrete way, in a very mundane way, ordinary way, uh, to try to uh, make it clear as to what uh, intimacy of practice is. Uh, let's start with, let's say, a yogi job. We started there, remember, a long time ago? And uh, I don't know what's been going on with a few of you. I do know, we've talked. Uh, whatever your job is, being intimate with the job would mean that you're not separating yourself from your experience. That is, you're in touch with your experience, whether it's chopping ve vegetables or vacuuming or whatever your job is. Um, now, if you're vacuuming, intimacy with the job is not crawling inside the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> what it is is there's no separation between you and, and the doing of it. And of course, there are degrees of that. Uh, to begin with, uh, depending on you, uh, so many different factors. There might be separation, like, for example, looking from the outside, it, you might do a beautiful job of vacuuming. Everything's, if someone were to inspect it, perfect job and it looks like you're really doing it, but much of your mind is, is caught up in the walk that you're going to take, and uh, as soon as you finish this, uh, looking forward to taking a nice walk around the loop and getting some fresh air, the job gets done. No complaints. Center looks nice. You're part of the center. Uh, but inside, uh, typically what happens is thinking comes between us and our experience. So the experience is not direct. We're not fully in touch with what's happening. Okay. Now, the remedy in practice is not to kind of power yourself, force yourself to be intimate with vacuuming. Like after hearing this, it's much more delicate and subtle and refined. It's more beginning to become an expert in noticing separation. Beginning to notice that while you're vacuuming, the mind is somewhere else. Maybe you don't like the vacuum. Or maybe you have other plans. Or it doesn't really matter, it could be anything, but uh, you begin to see how there's a kind of a film between you and what you're doing. And the film grows out of the mind. And in the seeing of it, at least to some degree, it falls away. And then you're much more just vacuuming. It's very ordinary. Uh, but when you learn this art of doing things intimately, wholeheartedly, in an undivided way, even the most uh, routine things that we do day in and day out can become alive. 
because what's making them boring is either we are comparing them with something else that we might be doing, it would be more enjoyable, or we've done it so many times, how many more times are we going to brush our teeth or floss? And, and so there's the memory of that, and we come back to it, and the job gets done, but we're hardly there. Okay. Um, give you some sense of it. Let's say nature. Uh, you're in nature, and... Um, there's a poem by Li Po, a great Chinese poet, and he talks about, he's obviously in nature, in a, mountain, uh, in a mountainous area, and he, he describes how first the birds are gone now, and then all the clouds are gone, and then there's just, there's the mountain and Li, and, uh, Li Po, and then Li Po's gone, and just the mountain remains. Well, it doesn't mean that his body walked away. What it means is that Li Po is gone. That is, the uh, self-conscious sense of an observer in nature. And this is where Dharma, ta- Dharma language sometimes drives people crazy, especially uh, those of you who are rather new to this. It's only when you're not there that you're really there. I mean, what makes everything so beautiful is that you're out of the way. And then the mountain can just be fully experienced directly and intimately. The applications are really endless. Um, So many things go on that are, in a sense, we cook them with ideas, with concepts that we're not fully in touch. It could be relationships with people. Now, this is a big one, so I'm just going to touch it lightly. We'll be here for a couple of months. (laughs) Often... uh, we have images of ourselves, we have images of the person, let's say, a person that we're involved with, we're married to, lovers, whatever. Um, and if you're together for a while, those images can become stronger and not even known and taken for granted. And in a sense, that image of the other person is between you and the other person because, oh yeah, good old ex, you know, and they do this and they write and then they, we have it all down. You know, because we've seen them do certain things that are, are repeated. And perhaps they're doing the same thing to us. And so intimacy and relationship uh, would be when we begin to see subtle ways in which we're not in touch with the other person. And it's not just in uh, personal, intimate relations that we talk about as being intimate. Any person who you meet, it could be someone you're buying a newspaper from, uh, all day long this issue comes up. Are you there? Are you receptive? If you're not, you, more and more we become good at seeing what's between us, like we don't care, or we're uh, thinking about something else. We're filling out our income tax while we're uh, doing, purchasing something. Little by little, uh, that becomes less, and we see that it's actually a wonderful way to live. This uh, taking each thing, uh, keeping it simple, doing what, and just sticking to the present from, from moment to moment, living that way. Um, it's not easy because our starting point is we're quite separate. We're separated. Okay. Uh, the relationship one, of course, is the most, perhaps the most complex. And um, Okay, I'm going to resist going more into, going to that more. Um, food. 
you know, I, when I was going to college, all things French were in. And you had to go to, go to Paris for your junior year. And uh, you had, then there weren't croissants all over the place and patisseries. And that was something really that only the people who were really sophisticated would know how to eat a croissant and read existential literature. And, and you felt you were really something special. And I also thought, well, this, the reason I know this is because some years ago, someone, a practitioner, came into an interview and had this discovery. And she said, I've been eating French cheese for 10 years. You know, I said, and I just realized I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, so the person's been eating a concept for 10 years. Okay, okay. Now oriental things are in. Do you really like tofu? <laughs> I mean, I do, I do, but I really do. <laughs> okay. Or supposing you went over to a friend's house and they, uh, for dinner and they, uh, they said, yeah, here's a piece of fish. I didn't have time to cook it. And uh, I don't think you'd want it. But then they said, you know that new uh, Japanese Korean restaurant? I picked up some sushi. You know, oh, sushi, oh, wonderful. It's raw fish, it's uncooked. So the mind is in there a lot. You'll see it's all over the place. Okay. Um, oh, you, you finally got it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll give you a more poignant one. Uh, no, seriously. Uh, my father had Alzheimer's and was in a nursing home. And for the first six months before he was ad admitted to the nursing home, there was a lot of uh, medical examination and paperwork. And the word Alzheimer's was used over and over and over. Well, your dad has Alzheimer's. And that was a condition for getting him into a certain kind of nursing home that we thought would be very, uh, that would be beneficial for him. And uh, what used to be my father became someone who had Alzheimer's. I mean, the term just, and for the, I would say for the first six months or so when I would visit him, when we all would visit him, but I can only speak for myself, I would see him through this film of Alzheimer's, that he had Alzheimer's. And finally, one day I realized that if I could just let go of that, he was still my father, the same way, really. It's just his mind was a bit broken. It didn't work the way it used to. And once I threw that away, there was a, a good connection. Sometimes I wouldn't know what he was talking about. And he would laugh. And because I threw the concept away, I would laugh, too. I didn't know what, it, what was so funny. But it didn't matter. Uh, and so how many concepts are we using, you know, and all over the place to uh, that... Uh, which we call living. We think we're really living. And that is, what happens is, I think, th thought, thought, thinking, actively participates in defining what's happening. And then it doesn't take responsibility. It runs away and hides. And then we take it for the facts. We think this is, the tr this is what we're seeing. We're really, a, a good deal of it is what thought and actively defining, in, you know, together with what's happening. My father was, definitely had something that was off. Okay, so do you see what we're talking about? It's, it's a, a willingness to allow life in, in a way that is not uh, encumbered 
by all of our past accumulations, knowledge and experience and so forth, as necessary as, as that is. Okay. When we talk about mindfulness here, um, <clears throat> sometimes uh, people think that mindfulness is detached. And I think sometimes perhaps it is taught that way. And perhaps at the beginning of necessity it is. That is, we're looking at pain and fear and loneliness, some of the things we've been talking about. And maybe uh, we pull back a bit and observe it from a distance. But I would say that as practice matures, that's not what um, mindfulness is at all. It's, an, it's, a, it's a kind of participant observation. That is, you're fully in the midst of your experience. It's just that you remain objective. You remain balanced in the midst of it. You're not observing it with a, a telescope or binoculars from a mountain. Quite the contrary. As practice matures, you're, it's intimate. You're really experiencing it. Another way of putting it is, it's free of concepts. Mindfulness has no thinking in it. I mean, I, you really have to know that. Mindfulness has no thinking in it. It's a clear mirror. And so uh, you can see the implications. Now, when we practice, it takes a lot of refinement because to begin with, our mirror is covered over by our conditioning. Whatever our life has been so far, especially if we're new to this, when we look at reality, of course we think we're seeing what's there. Uh, and then more and more, as the art of observation becomes refined, you begin to see ways in which you're putting something in the way. And it gets very, very subtle. Uh, let's say, when we even to follow a breath, what would it mean to be intimate with breathing? If your mind is slightly ahead of itself, it has a gaining idea, that is, if I follow these, bre these breaths continuously enough, then uh, the mind is going to become calm and peaceful. Maybe you've already experienced it. If not, maybe you read it in a book or heard someone say it. And because part of your mind's in the future, part of your mind is caught up in what you're going to get out of the mindfulness, you're not intimate with the breath. And it's actually keeping you from what it is you want. So that's why we keep saying over and over and over again, uh, actually, if you can surrender to the breath just as it is, that has a dynamic all its own. It starts to move and peace starts to come. If you have some project on your mind that's accompanying you in the present moment about how you're going to get peaceful, that, uh, that itself is between you and, and, uh, and an in-breath and an out-breath. Okay. Um, now, all of this also applies to, let's say, seeing impermanence. Uh, the law of impermanence, I think probably none of you would dispute it, that things are changing. And uh, over the past few days, uh, we've put that on your mind, and I have a hunch you've probably been seeing at least some of that. Okay. Uh, but they're seeing and they're seeing. And so with practice, more and more, the quality of the seeing of this of change becomes more intimate. You start to uh, experience uh, this law at work. At first, it's seen on the surface of behavior, on the surface of consciousness. And with practice, more and more, you experience it at increasingly subtle levels. Until, in a sense, you are impermanence. It's not something that you're studying out there, but rather you're experiencing uh, the impermanence of yourself 
living out itself from moment to moment, not as a concept. And then we get to um, all this stuff about not-self. And I know that uh, is difficult. I'm just going to say a few words uh, about it because I have to give you a sense, I feel, of if we've touched 13 can't be fully understood and the sutra can't be understood unless you understand 14, 15, and 16. And they all go together uh, in a way that I can, at least in words, cover fairly quickly. The doing of it is, is another matter. Why all this fuss about impermanence in 13? Uh, why are we supposed to become the world's experts on, uh, on impermanence? Uh, because it's in seeing the changing nature of formations that you can let go. That helps you let go. And it's the letting go that is what uh, frees us from our suffering. So in and of itself, if you're obsessed with impermanence, that is uh, a dead end. But of course, if you really are seeing impermanence, it's got to open you up to other things. It's the same with self. If everything that's happening to you is grasped onto, attached to, and used as materials out of which to construct a sense of self, out of which to strengthen the sense of self that you already have, how to maintain it, how to build it up when it gets attacked and damaged, if that's what you're doing, uh, there's a lot of suffering. Okay, in the seeing of how we use whatever is turning up in the mind as the materials out of which to fashion a sense of self, uh, as we begin to stop doing that or as, be as we begin to see that everything is just happening and that what we're doing by identifying with what's happening is we are creating a sense of self out of it and strengthening that tendency to be separate. A good term that I like for it is selfing, and I, it, it's good that it's a verb, because it's something that we do over and over and over again, that as something happens, we appropriate it, we grasp it, the mind does, and uses it as the basis for, uh, for selfing, for a sense of self. Uh, every time you push something away, or you grasp onto it, that's another way of saying you've attached to it as being me or mine. Okay, so we're getting into really the core of our suffering. Uh, and as you begin to see that whatever arises uh, passes away and it lacks self, that it is, it is an illusion to see it as having this solid core, that it's a, an enduring entity. Because as you watch, it's not an ideology to be believed in. It's some, a process to be observed and learned about. You have to investigate. You have to, investigation here is not so much thinking, but by, but by getting, beginning to see, for example, that um, if your knee hurts, or some part of the body hurts, and I'm sure we all have had that experience, it's a very different uh, experience if, you're, if the attention is focused on the sensations, the painful sensations in the body. That's quite different than if the attention wavers a bit. It's kind of there, but it's also kind of not there. And then what pours in is something in us that appropriates it and uh, uses that. This is my knee. This is happening to me. It's not simply that there's throb, 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 ache, 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 but rather that throb, 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 ache, ache, ache is happening to this, from the point of view of this teaching, construction that we've built. 
The self is put together by thinking. We've created an enclosure using everything. Physical objects, attainments in life, uh, people, uh, skills, whatever our sense of our body, our self, to create a story, a sense of who we are in the mind. And even a small event, uh, like a pain in the knee, can uh, you move from pain which, or discomfort to torment. Have you seen that? Have you seen the difference between uh, when you're able to just be right there with the body in the body and the Buddha's usage, and when you're not, and when um, it all gets mixed in together, what the mind is doing to what's happening uh, get, like, gets blended together, and then you have torment or anguish. And that comes largely from what the mind is adding to what's happening. So what's happening is not pleasant, but then the mind hits itself over the head again because it's, like, it's that way. And more and more as you begin to see this process, then there's a letting go. You don't do that. You start to see that it's painful to be uh, standing out, uh, facing life all the time as this ego who's on the line, constantly seeking confirmation. Am I okay? Am I pretty? Am I handsome? Am I intelligent? Do you like me? It's going on a lot, isn't it? Looking into each other's eyes. I, I, I am all right, right? And it's exhausting. Okay, now, if we see the source of our suffering, really see it the way we know a toothache, no mistake about it, it is painful. I don't think most of us have fully connected that the root problem... I know. God. <laughs> Well, this is a kind of a root canal thing, yeah, but it's a... Stop it. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you could begin to see that, because we've spent so much time blaming the world for our unhappiness, and that's easy enough to do. It's, it's a difficult world out there. I mean, we're part of that. We're doing it for others. Others are making us, giving us a hard time, but we're, we're no angels either. We're doing it to each other. Okay, so uh, 13 has, uh, so crucial in it is, as you begin to see the arising and passing away, the arising and passing away, and as you stop identifying with everything, grasping onto everything as being me or mine, there's a letting go that happens, and of course there's a feeling of freedom and happiness. Okay, when you move to 14, 14 is um, breathing in, the yogi focuses on fading away. Breathing out, the yogi fa uh, focuses on fading away. What's starting to happen is, uh, it's really, I've already told you what's happening. I've kind of hinted at it. It's like a, a, a phase in a film, you know, a, a time series in a movie. As you start seeing the impermanence, the impermanence, what fades away is the attachment. Because as you see the, uh, the changing nature of everything, the tendency to grasp onto things and make them into self in an ongoing way becomes less and less intelligent and sensible. And the, so it's attachment that starts to fade away. And then the 15th is cessation, where it feels like, whew, gone. Okay, now that cessation can be a small one in the moment, and in that sense, we've all done that 
lots of times here. And sometimes in a big sense, it's an enlightenment experience, which is finally the 16th, which is relinquishment. Sorry, the 15th, breathing in, the yogi sees cessation. Breathing out, the yogi focuses on cessation. Uh, and then the, 17th, the 16th, breathing in, the yogi uh, sees relinquishment. Breathing out, the yogi sees relinquishment. Um, so if you see it as like a, a time series in a film, what's happening is, as more and more you see the, le- the impermanence, the impermanence, what starts to happen is the tendency to grasp on, thing, uh, on things as being me or belonging to me, that starts to fade. And at a certain point, not only does it fade, but it falls away. Well, why do we need a 16th? The 16th is sort of the really subtlest. Because finally, even what has to be let go of is the practice itself. And there are subtle levels of self that are uh, very happy about how the practice is going. Uh, and so that uh, goes on. Uh, one of my teachers, Ajahn Buddhadasa, I had, a, I thought, a, a beautiful way of putting it. Relinquishment is giving back to nature what you have uh, falsely appropriated from it. In other words, we've, we think we own everything. The mind is grasping onto everything. And in the 16th, we understand that we don't own our own mind, except legally. You know, we don't own it. Uh, and we start to see that we've taken all the materials in, in the world and created this sense of how it's all me and mine. And we're all doing it to each other. And we're using things like race and religion and country and possessions and knowledge and degree, everything, whatever's, whatever we can get our hands on to create a sense of being a somebody. And then since we're all doing it, we're all feeling lonely and separate from each other. I wonder why. All this, well, you know, I don't want to get too political. Um, can we see that intimately? See, the challenge is that process. Now, I do want to make something else really clear, as clear as I can. Uh, our practice is the practice of liberation. Uh, and I think many of us have a view that we're practicing all of these things that we're doing so that someday, way off in that wonderful future, like the end of a Hollywood movie, we'll be liberated. And I don't know, there'll be, it'll be quite a day. You know, <laughs> you know bands playing and, you know. Okay. But it's also a practice and you don't have to wait for that day because what we're doing, because in a given moment we're enslaved. Whenever we grasp onto things and claim them and turn them into this is me, this is mine, and we suffer, in that moment we're enslaved. But in the next breath, if you see into it, you see the, as you more and more can see the nature of what you're doing, begin to understand it and let go, there's a moment of uh, fading away, of, of cessation, of sometimes even relinquishment. The, the relinquishment means uh, no attachment to greed, hatred, and delusion at all. Nirvana. So there's also, uh, there is, there are dramatic states of breakthrough in, in meditation. No question about that. But if you're fixated on that, you're missing the point because the fulfillment is right here and now. We're enslaved right here and now, and we can become free right here and now. And it's always going to be like that. After all, uh, even these deep states of awakening, they happen in a particular time and place. And then what? 
Life goes on. We'll be challenged again. Even the Buddha, after full enlightenment, look at what that poor man had to go through. If you read uh, the suttas, you know, he had people who are as ruly, unruly as us and worse. You know, they'd come and they'd hear half of what he would say. They'd agree with him but not do it. They'd, uh, you know, uh, try to, uh, to kill him. There were all kinds of things that went on. And he had, a, because of what he set for himself to do, he had to learn how to do that and deal with tremendous obstacles. Uh, including sometimes, uh, take a breather. For example, if you think that the first three days were kindergarten stuff, where you just go in and out with the breath in an exclusive way, and then you kind of at some point graduate to the real thing, the Buddha did that practice even, uh, it, it, and there's one exchange where he, uh, I don't know why, maybe got fed up with what was going on, but he took a break for some time, I think it may have been a month, and no one knew where he was, and he went and did a personal retreat. And then he came back and, you know, where were you? He said, well, I went for my own personal retreat. He said, oh, well, what were you doing on your personal retreat? He said, anapanasati, full awareness of breathing. Just what we were doing on Friday. From Friday, you know, for the three days. we're still doing it, but what we were doing exclusively. And the person said, well, in effect, well, why do you need to do that? You're a fully enlightened being. And the Buddha said, because it's a great way to live. In other words, you just, uh, just simply uh, sitting and breathing and, uh, feeling that joy and peace and love. So, um, take care of right here and now. And some, some of you, there have been three or four uh, notes or questions, are very concerned about the future. And the practice is about awakening. I prefer awakening to enlightenment or liberation to enlightenment, uh, personally, just language. Um, A little bit more on this self stuff or not self stuff, and then I, I want to use a concrete example of aging uh, to go through that to show you practically how you can use this uh, that we're learning here uh, to help yourself age more gracefully and to even use the aging process, aging, sickness, and death. That's what uh, lies in front of us. Sorry. Uh, to practice with and to, to use those materials to actually awaken. Um, in Zen, because uh, I want to, uh, to come back to the intimacy point, and in Zen, uh, they, in, in Japanese Zen, they have a term called Satori, uh, which is a, a kind of a, a deep insight uh, and which is sometimes translated as seeing your true nature. And when you read about it and hear about it, and there's a fair amount of romance about it, uh, maybe less so, but certainly when Zen first came in, when we hear our true nature, it sounds wonderful, I, it sounds wonderful to me, still does, but the mind tends to see it as something outside of itself. Someday I'll get to my true nature. Okay. Uh, but that's what's keeping us from the true nature is not a rep... Uh, let me put it this way. What we're seeing in the mind, all these notions about self, they're representations. Let's say self-images, uh, verbal characterizations. Uh, the mind has got a lot of pictures and words about itself. Me and the story of my life. Do you know what I mean? We, whenever you meet a, no, a new person, 
if nothing else, you got someone else to unload it on, finally, you know, <laughs> yeah, okay. And if no one will listen, you just tell it to yourself again, <laughs> okay. Okay, so, but, and then we come to think of ourselves, we conceptualize ourselves as being a this, a this, that, and the other out there. Okay, as you practice more and more, intimacy of practice would mean you begin to see that, that those are representations of who you are. Just the way a photograph of yourself wouldn't be you, it would be a representation of you. You know, you graduating, you know, a nice photograph picture, the nice the professional photographer with clean pearly teeth and healthy cheeks and, you know, mounted on the piano. You know, one-tenth of not even a split second in your life and there it is really happy graduation day. Uh, but that's a representation, a little bit doctored up, in fact. But so is our mind. Our mind has got all kinds of pictures that are, uh, some of them quite uh, flattering, <laughs> and some of them quite derogatory. But they're all representations. Or you see clips of a movie and, uh, and it, you know, frames of it. Out, uh, and then you see the actual movie, it's so different. Okay, so uh, the practice of meditation is stripping away, stripping away, stripping away until all these representations fall away. Satori, original nature, is not something you see. It's the seeing that is original nature. I mean, when there's just clear seeing, sounds, there's just sounds, there's just thinking, there's just uh, smelling, tasting, uh, fully alive, fully present. It's not another representation that's bigger than life that's called my true nature, is that the seeing, the hearing, the touching, that is true nature. Now this may sound like, is that all it is? Then I, I want my money back. <laughs> but uh, you'll just, okay. Um, it's very important to get this because that has to be seen closely and that a lot of what we're doing is that, is, uh, is that up close looking at what it is we do when we put together a sense of me. Um, a long time ago, uh, a great teacher from, from India came to China with the teachings. His name was Bodhidharma. And he found that in China, Buddhism was already there, but it was mainly scholarly. And people were just writing brilliant translations and commentaries, but no one was practicing and no one was enlightened. And so Bodhidharma came there to teach actual practice. And the emperor met with him because he was a distinguished visitor. He was also pretty old at the time, Bodhidharma was. And the emperor, who had, who had supported a lot of monks and nuns and monasteries and uh, books and all kinds of things, was pretty proud of himself. So that's what was going on, scholarship and ceremony and, good, uh, and generosity and building things. But no one was getting free. So the emperor said to Bodhidharma, um, I've uh, given all this uh, money to uh, support monks and nuns and have taken care of X number of monasteries, and uh, how much merit do I get for that? And Bodhidharma said, none. Okay. Uh, he saw where the emperor was coming from, which is it was a lot of selfing. You know, it was sort of the emperor was supporting monks and nuns to create a sense of being a great emperor. And the emperor was taken aback by that. And then, he, so he asked another question. He said, well, what can you say about the Holy Dharma? He also had a very romantic vocabulary about what was going on. 
And again, Bodhidharma, trying really to teach him, but it's tough teaching, said, nothing holy, just vast emptiness. Now that might sound like worthless, but if any of you have been on the dusty Buddhist path for a while, you know that that's very, very beautiful. Just vast emptiness. The emperor was really annoyed now. And he said, in effect, who are you? Who, are, who is it that's telling me all this? Who are you? Who is it that's saying all these things? And Bodhidharma said, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Now, is he an amnesiac or prefrontal, prefrontal lobotomy patient? He's not living in terms of ideas about himself. Finally, um, and then I'd like to move into aging. We're going to go over tonight. Michael and I have already talked it out. <laughs> um, Joseph Stalin missed the point. If he'd only got, understood this teaching, he could have gone down in history as a great sage instead of a, a horrible murderer. Uh, there's a story in his biography that um, one of his uh, closest attendants uh, came up to him and was complaining about some of his assistants and how they were a real problem. They were just annoying. They didn't always listen to what he said and was getting fed up with him, tired of him. And Stalin listened carefully and then he said to him, no person, no problem. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And next day, no problem. Okay. But he was a little crude in his understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to aging. Okay. I've left a rather dubious going away present for you all. Michael picked up on that. I was really, I thought it was a nice present. Michael said, oh boy, a real upbeat present. Uh, you can pick it up as you go out. It's a, a handout, which to some degree will explain uh, how to use it. And you can use, use it when you go home. But there are five subjects for frequent reflection that have been used since the time of the Buddha. And the first one is, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm going to go through the first one, aging, because if you understand it, it'll be easier for you to go through the others. I'm, I am subject to aging. Aging is unavoidable. I'm subject to illness. Illness is unavoidable. I'm subject to death. Death is unavoidable. Uh, let me just stop there. This is a very uh, precious kind of contemplation. Um, why would we intentionally arouse this sense of the fact that we're aging, uh, the fact that, we're, that illness often grows out of that, and that finally all of us must uh, depart from this world. Our body must die. <clears throat> In the Buddhist teaching, um, life and death walk hand in hand. Uh, the way we deal with things, we uh, gather all the goodies that we can in this life, identify with them, and uh, push death away as far as we can, way down there sometime when it's going to happen. As a result, um, we pay a price for that. Uh, 
the reason for not only reflecting, these are reflections, they're not, not exactly what we've been doing all week, uh, where you turn over that idea and, and grasp the significance of it, but you can also see it happening in daily life, in your own life, and that, I will get to that in a moment. But the benefit of really seeing the aging process, let's call it that, there are many benefits to it. One is, we all have a good deal of fear about aging, sickness, and death, uh, sometimes bordering on terror. Uh, it's controlled or it's suppressed, but who isn't concerned about that? So one reason for it is to flush out that fear so that you can then practice with it. It's not wise to do unless your mindfulness has some steadiness to it. But that's one way you bring up the very fear uh, in order to get to know it intimately and, be, and at least weaken it. And that, of course, will improve the quality of your life. The other is to help us deal with a subtle kind of arrogance that we all have. Young people uh, have the arrogance that they're, you know, they have all this energy and uh, just to think that there's this huge world awaiting them. For the most part, there is. And there's a kind of arrogance uh, and often... Uh, actions, speech, and thoughts, and actions that come out of the mind uh, have very negative consequences because of that arrogance. That is, we don't, they don't see so clearly. They have the, you know, it's as if we often hear, youth is wasted on young people, you know, because their judgment is so off, and they're sometimes so inconsiderate and self-centered, and not that we're any bargains, but anyway. <laughs> um, so this can temper that if a young person is willing to do it. Uh, it's the same with, with uh, illness. When you're healthy, there's a subtle arrogance. Uh, it's just good to have a nice functioning body that's not too much in pain and uh, does what needs to be done and you have the requisite energy to accomplish things and so forth. And yet we can all be sick in a moment, and we, all, we are. Uh, and in this practice, we practice with illness. Uh, we don't just... Uh, uh, whine away while we're sick. We actually can use those moments of illness uh, to, to develop wisdom and, and to free ourselves. Uh, and of, of course, finally death. We also have a kind of arrogance that we'll live forever, longevity. We, we know we're not going to, but it's as if we will. Okay. Let's take aging for the moment, and I'm going to be really concrete, give you some examples so you can see this practice is about us. These come out of actual things that have happened in Cambridge, in the practice there, um, from interviews, and some from uh, real-life experiences, one my own. A person comes into the interview room and, uh, oh, I don't know, a year or two ago, and bit down. Oh, what's the problem? Well, I don't know, I feel, I'm feeling both sad today. Well, did something happen? Yes, something happens and I, I just, I'm down all day. Uh, what is that? Because we practice with, the, with our, our, we don't just sit and walk in, uh, in an urban center where we bring everything into it. And then she said, well, I woke up this morning and suddenly I felt real stiff. Felt a stiffness in legs and back. You know, I was waiting, sure, who doesn't know that? And I said, well, what's the problem? Well, immediately what happened was uh, the mind jumped to, this is it. This aging that everyone's talking about, it's here. I'm going to be old, I am old, and before you know it, there was an assault. A whole drama was built up. 
now there's a sense of self that of course the body is central it's, a, it's one of the main materials that we use to create this sense of self and now suddenly this body is becoming stiff and then what came out of it were thoughts of hearing aids and walkers and uh, so forth and the person got very depressed by it now I'm not saying it's thrilling to wake, wake up and see that you're stiff and uh, it probably is a sign that the body is aging Here's what goes on, in, what went on in this moment. It's not simply that the body is getting stiff. The mind identifies with that physical fact. And then that becomes materials that are used to assault the sense of self, which is not of somebody who's uh, older or aged or getting older or whatever language you like. And suddenly that's an assault on one's self-image and uh, it's a shock. It's a shock to the system because there's an identification with the body that's so strong that uh, we've made me and mine out of it. So we're back to what we were talking about. And so this person, because of the stiffness, uh, has now got a real problem. And so Dharma practice is to begin to see that, yes, the body must get stiff. The body must age. But does, but does the mind have to age? Now, maybe the brain does, and even there, there are things that can go on which are quite interesting. Uh, so do you see the direction it's going in? That is, she was able to some degree to ease the pain because uh, she could see what she was doing with the stiffness, or is uh, turning it into torment because it became who she was, rather than uh, a descriptive fact about the body. The next one is about myself. Uh, this is about I don't know, two or three years ago, those of you who were from the Boston area, was in uh, Brookline. Naturally, I was going to a dentist. It's a local joke, it's all right. There's a lot of dentists in Brookline. Okay. And um, I, get, I take the tea, I'm taking the tea back to Cambridge. I get on the tea and fine, you know, just finished seeing the dentist. Uh, and uh, all the seats are taken and i holding on to the, whatever it is. This, what, you know, uh, I don't know, strap or something, holding on to it. And there's a young woman sitting right opposite me. She looks up at me. She was about 21, 22. Looks up at me, smiles. You know, I don't know. And then <laughs> she uh, gets up and gives me her seat. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, okay, I assumed she's probably getting off at the next stop. And I, you know, I sit down. She's not getting off at the next stop. So suddenly, uh, an alarm goes through the system. You know, sort of, uh, wait a minute. I'm the kind of guy, I give up my seat to people. No one gives up their seat to me. Not only am I a guy, and I'm from the generation where men gave up seats to women. I still do it, sorry. You know, but also, I'm young enough to do that. Uh, no one had ever given up their seat to me. Uh, and the mind became feverish and really <laughs> upset. And it started going to, well, maybe it's because I was just at the dentist and I looked bad or, you know, uh, you know it's starting to defend itself. But no, it was just a cleaning, you know, it was just a, couldn't we, okay. So that wasn't working. Then uh, there, there was really, the, the body was affected. It was very, very upsetting. Uh, then it got into, oh boy, I see what's next, Hot, you know. Hey, Pop, how's it going? You know, 
uh, I'll be walking down the street and uh, hooligans will come over and say, you know, uh, hey, Grandpa, get out of the way. You know, sort of, uh, what's happening here? Uh, it took a while, you know, for me to get used to this new way of looking at myself. Uh, did I have a self-image that was youthful? I must have. You know, where is this all coming from? And I did finally have a bit of a laugh, not mu as much as you're having at my expense. But it was finally very helpful because the truth is I am getting older. The truth is she's seeing, it's a fact, she's seeing something quite accurate. And it was very kind and nice of her and I couldn't handle it because I had an investment in being a such and such. And she meant well, but she's undermining that. Uh, and other, other events have come up. Uh, a, f a friend of mine went to the, approximately my age, uh, 65. See, I'm not self-conscious about it. <laughs> Just flaunt it. <laughs> so, um, went to a play and was purchasing his ticket. And he handed the money for a ticket. And then the ticket taker said, looked at him and said, Oh, you know, you can get it for a reduced rate for seniors. And he, he just, his whole, the whole play was destroyed. You know, he just, uh, at that moment, he didn't want, you know, a, a less expensive ticket. He wanted to be able to pass for somebody younger than he was. Okay. And my stepdaughter, who's only 28, we were at a restaurant, and the waiter referred to her as ma'am. And for the rest of the day, she couldn't get, ma'am, ma'am, why is it, what do you mean, ma'am, ma'am? You know, I'm just, I'm 28. And her image, she was even younger than 28. Okay. Practice can begin to see the ways in which, um, as we lose our capacities, as the hairs start graying and falling out, as, uh, what was that? As we're, uh, we can't uh, do that jog in, a, you know, in the same time. We can't, uh, our energy changes. It's inevitable. Now, we can turn that into a torture chamber as we hold on tightly to an image of, how, of who we want to be and how we want the world to see us. A lot of suffering, tremendous amount of suffering, exhaustion. Like now that I'm 65, I get all these magazines, senior type magazines, a new kind of junk mail. You got all these, uh, somehow I'm welcomed into my silver years, you know. <laughs> and you got all these people who are in Bermuda shorts, you know, with the gray hair and rosy cheeks, and they're golfing, swimming, you know, playing tennis, and they're so happy. Who wouldn't want to become a senior citizen? Just, just terrific. I can hardly wait, you know. Uh, and there's a magazine that I was given a free subscription, first issue. It's, it's something about uh, the battle against aging, and it's combating aging, and it's, it's all the science is now enlisted. And sure, let's do some things to uh, improve the quality of our life, to live longer. I'm not, it's not that. But finally, the body must wear out. And the attitude of this whole magazine was as if the struggle of science has got to keep us alive forever. You know, we've got to see what is this aging process about and then finally keep us alive forever and ever. Um, did you see when Senator Glenn uh, gave this long speech? Senator, for those you don't know, was an, uh, an astronaut and then he became a senator and now he's in his 70s and he's going to go up. And uh, I had been on retreat for a month and I came back and I just saw clips of it, but I saw the part that I felt like he and I are in the same business. He says, um, 
Well, as an astronaut, I'm able to go, uh, you know, to do what astronauts do. And uh, we know that some of the, the, the interesting things happen regarding the aging process when you go into outer space. And I want to use uh, this as an opportunity, uh, a kind of personal adventure and also discovery, to find out things about aging uh, and then to bring it back, you know, because I am uh, in my mid-70s, but I'm in good shape. He obviously does take good care of himself and so forth. And so he's an astronaut and he's going up there to use his own body uh, to study the effects of outer space and in the process learn something about the aging, about aging for, for the rest of us. And I realized that's what I'm doing, I'm a, but I'm a psychonaut, you know. <laughs> my job is also, as I'm aging, I'm practicing mindfulness, I'm trying to learn like, but for, you know, you can read all the books you want. It's very different when you're doing it in your own life. And so as my body ages, as my life changes, I'm doing my best to move with it. To, um, we could go on because what can come out of this is freedom. You see, the real suffering is not even the aging. The real suffering is, again, what happens to the mind when the mind is assaulted by images that it has of itself which do not include the fact that we will age or die or get sick on the way. And so the, the, very, the materials, these materials are also the basis for developing wisdom. If you're a Vipassana practitioner, everything that happens to you in your life is used to enrich your spiritual life. Everything, nothing's outside of it. That's a large part of the beauty of it. And if you do it right, not only can you age more gracefully, but you can become more free. Um, I'll give you finally two examples. Um, I don't know, um, one I don't know personally, it's hearsay, but there's a, a, a great yogi, now dead, in India who was asked, he was in his late 80s, what's it like of a highly enlightened person based on what we know? Uh, some of my friends have studied with him, I didn't. Uh, what's it like to be an aging yogi? Uh, and he listened and then he laughed and he said, oh, I watched senility starting to come in and memory starting to decompose and then just laughed, roared with laughter. Uh, but what, what is implied here, it's not even implied, it's, uh, is, is that there's something even deeper than what's happening uh, in a sense to the scenery, to the functioning. There's a place that's much deeper and of course finally our practice is coming to that place that is not birth or death, whatever language you want to call it, that is not birth or death. Uh, it's a, a place that's, um, okay, I'll just leave it, whether you want to call it the unconditioned or, uh, what is being said is if the practice is deep enough, uh, to me it's plausible that maybe the brain starts to disintegrate, but it, I think it's possible to be even deeper than the functioning of the brain. In this, there's a difference between brain and mind. Mind is, of course, needs to use the brain, but there's something that's beyond brain. Another is from a friend of Michael's and mine, and some of you may know him from Cambridge, uh, a, a very old and dear friend who, who has the early stages of Alzheimer's. Uh, and when it happened, he's been practicing for at least 20 years, fortunately. When it happened, it was terrifying for him, a man and his... Um, mid-70s, and he was starting to forget in ways that were uh, embarrassing, humiliating, um, and even dangerous, you know, around the house. 
and uh, he has uh, his wife is also a practitioner and uh, just uh, a rather extraordinary individual. At any rate, the two of them plus some uh, close friends, we all supported him through this phase. But he's at a place now. I, I just had dinner with him a few months ago, a month ago, whenever, and he's used the practice, and he's over the the really uh, excruciating pain of seeing certain capacities fall away that he could count on. He was an extremely highly educated, articulate, uh, very eloquent kind of person. And what he's able to do now, and I've witnessed this firsthand, you know, right in the room with him, is when, the, when suddenly he's uh, quite uh, intelligent and rational, and then suddenly something happens and it's all gone. And uh, he's there. Now, sometimes his wife will give him a cue and that brings him back. It's not simply a simple memory lapse. It's like uh, a lot's wiped out right in that moment, including who's, who am I here with? Uh, but he's learned to now, uh, at first, that would uh, bring terror to him, just absolute terror. And then that would feed on itself and then it would be a nightmare. Now he's learned that when he, there's something in him that's deep enough to know, oh, it's that lost feeling, I don't know what's going on here, is, and if, when fear comes up, he's mindful of it. Or he's mindful of do right now, or what's going on. And instead of freaking out, he's able to practice with that awkwardness, with that uh, open-ended lack of clarity, and Sometimes he's found the thread back in this one evening, a number of times he did, uh, by himself. You, know, by, you could see he was working on what that did to him, you know, just having lost it, what that did to him. He was able to meditate with that. He's certainly capable of still doing that. And at other times, he, ne he didn't get back to where we were, but it just didn't bother him. And so we just would pick up and go somewhere else. It didn't matter. Um, at any rate, this is just a hint uh, that the practice is something uh, to be lived. It's something that can help you every step along the way. Okay. Um, the group that's, uh, that I'm meeting with now, you'll have a full session. Uh, you know, the full life. Is that true? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah my, mine will be, we're upstairs and we're going to do our group and also um, sit when we finish, but I, maybe I blew it a little. Yeah. This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on July 15, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.